more than 50% of the rulings made by Abu Hanifa. He disagreed with them and offered alternative rulings based on new information which he had gathered, which was not available to Abu Hanifa at the time when those rulings were made. This was the spirit of those companions. Hanafi, he will say, well, Abu Hanifa was born before any of the other Imams. You know, he was born in 713. Seek the knowledge. However, the fanatical Hanafi, he will say, well, Abu Hanifa was born before any of the other Imams. You know, he was born in 713, or no, 706 or something like this. And uh, Imam Malik, he was born like in 717 or something. There's a difference of 14 years. That is, Imam Abu Hanifa was 14 years old when Imam Malik was born. So because of that, he's the greater Imam. But this is nonsense. You have another school of thought which exists till today, the Zaydi school. Most people don't know what Zaydi school, what Zaydi school. The Zaydi school of Islamic law is practiced mainly now in Yemen. It was founded by Imam Zaid, one of the descendants of Hassan, the uh, son of Ali ibn Abi Talib. He founded a school of Islamic law called the Zaydi school. And it has its own uh, system of uh, derivation of Islamic laws, etc., etc., and has a following, has history, etc. And guess what? Imam Zaid was born before Abu Hanifa. So, those who want to claim that, oh, Abu Hanifa is the greatest because he was born the first, well, guess what? Imam Zaid was born before him. So it is not about who was born, so on, so on. Some say, well, okay, Abu Hanifa, you know, he met uh, the students of the companions. He studied under the students of the companions. Guess what? Imam Malik's grandfather was a companion of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Imam Malik's grandfather his father's father was a companion of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu So we can't start to argue one was greater than the other because of this. Because you're always going to find other arguments, other factors which could promote another scholar over those scholars. These scholars were great scholars of their time who strove to help the people arrive at judgments which would be suitable for the circumstances they were in. They arose out of a necessity because the leadership of the Ummah had deviated and could no longer be depended upon to make correct and acceptable rulings for the Ummah 
because they, w they were beginning to make rulings which were in their own personal interests due to the deviation which took place. This is the reality. Now, we look briefly at some of the reasons for which a differences of opinion occurred amongst these scholars. If all of the scholars, and we just deal now with the four as well as the others, if all of them base their rulings on the Quran, on the Sunnah, on the Ijma' or the consensus of opinion of the Sahaba and the early generation of Muslims, scholars, as well as on the basis of deduction by way of analogy called Qiyas, why then was there a difference? The reality is that the companions of the Prophet Muhammad did not stay in Medina. They spread out all over the Muslim Ummah. And they all carried portions of knowledge of the Sunnah and understanding of the Quran with them. As such, when scholars arose in different areas, they would gather around them the knowledge which was available in their area. The Muslim state was vast. Though the scholars did traveling from place to place to gather knowledge, still, if a person was to try and gather all of the knowledge left behind by the companions, he would spend his whole life just traveling and studying. So obviously there had to come a point, scholars studied, when it was necessary for them to take the floor or to take the responsibility of making rulings for the people because they needed these rulings to be made. So they could not spend the whole of their lives traveling and gathering knowledge. So naturally, the knowledge which they had would be limited to the areas that they lived in or the areas that they traveled in. This naturally is related specifically to the traditions of the Prophet ﷺ, the Sunnah, the Hadith. Because the reality is that the collection of Hadith, the gathering of the Hadith into books of traditions, which we call the Sahih books, the Sunnah, etc. This took place after the generation of the great scholars. What you found actually is that the latter group of the scholars were themselves collectors of hadith. But the main authentic tradition collections in which the scholars sought to collect and separate the authentic traditions from those which were of, of dubious origin or those which were not authentic due to weaknesses in their chains of narrations, etc. This effort took place in the generation after the great Imams. So, due to these factors, one, the availability of hadith, two, the, the prevalence or the uh, existence of weak traditions of the Prophet three, certain conditions which the scholars set for the acceptance of traditions 
and four, their differences in approach to resolving apparent conflicts in the meanings of the traditions, we found different rulings arising amongst the scholars. The second major area of difference was due to the differences in meanings that some words carried. Some words had shared meanings, shared literal meanings. Some words had literal and figurative meanings. And some words, due to their grammatical usage, had different possible meanings. As a result, scholars who were looking at the text of the Quran and the Sunnah ended up with different rulings based on these different possible understandings which may be gotten from the text. Of course, ultimately, much of these differences are resolvable when we have the complete compilation of the traditions of the Prophet which would then clarify for us what was the intended meaning of the given text. The third reason for differences was that some of the scholars used principles to deduce laws which were not agreed upon by the other scholars. Besides these four basic principles, we had uh, certain other principles which some scholars introduced, like for example, Imam Malik and his students. They introduced also the principle of issues or rulings which were agreed upon by the people living in Medina who were descendants obviously of the companions of the Prophet that this had weight in Islamic law. Whatever they agreed upon must then be given consideration in the making of rulings because they represented what they agreed upon represented the living sunnah as opposed to the sunnah which may be narrated based on a particular incident which may not have been intended as a general ruling but a particular case this was the opinion held the other school scholars did not accept this ruling of Imam Malik and his students. In fact, Imam Laith was one of the strongest opponents to this line of reasoning and he and Imam Malik had a series of debates or discussions on this issue which took place by way of letters which was written between the two. The fourth area of difference, the area which really the greatest differences occurred was that in the application of what we call qiyas or analogy the fourth principle because 
this was based on opinion, on this individual understanding. This meant that the room for differences now was much greater because the differences of understandings amongst people is quite varied. And naturally, the differences in rulings as a result of rulings by way of Qiyas also were many. However, the approach of the scholars of this time and their students towards the rulings made in the various schools of thought was one that these rulings should not be considered rigid. As I mentioned to you, Abu Hanifa instructed his students not to write down these rulings. Imam Shafi'i, he was quoted as saying, if you find an authentic tradition, then it is my intended ruling. In other words, if you find a ruling of mine, but you later get an authentic tradition which contradicts my ruling, then the ruling which I would have preferred is that of the authentic tradition. So that is the one that you should follow. This was his advice. Imam Malik, when he was asked by his companions, if someone were to follow a Sahabi, one of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad if someone were to follow a companion blindly, whatever the companion ruled, whatever he judged, whatever he did, we just follow that since he was a companion of the Prophet, so would that person be on the right path? Imam Malik said, no, unless what the companion did or ruled was itself correct, because the truth is one. I know there is a very popular tradition which is quoted in some circles Ashabi can nujum bi'ayhim iqtadaytum ihtadaytum that the Prophet was supposed to have said my companions are like stars any one of them that you follow you will be rightly guided however this tradition is fabricated it is not authentic it contradicts the understanding of the early scholars and their statements as well as it contradicts the Quran itself. Added to this uh, source of fabrication is also another tradition which is commonly quoted Ikhtilaf Ummati Rahmah Ikhtilaf Ummati Rahmah The differences amongst my uh, Ummah is a source of mercy However, this is a truly fabricated tradition. It cannot be found in any of the books of tradition. In the case of my companions, this is a fabricated tradition, but it is found in some of the books of tradition, weaker books. However, in the case of my differences among my ummah, there's a mercy. This is not to be found in any. It has no chain. Fabricated, 100%. And people use it to support the idea that you follow whichever way you want, it doesn't matter what way you follow. It's become something like that wishy-washy approach where people sometimes say that as long as a person sincerely believes in God, 
It doesn't matter which route he follows. He will go to paradise. You have a group, ignorant group, amongst Muslims who have proposed this. You have a similar group amongst Christians, according to one of uh, the nuns who informed us that uh, in the ruling of the Vatican II in the 60s, it was ruled then that sincere belief, all religions wherein people sincerely believe in them, they are all valid paths to paradise. In fact, for us, the path is one. Prophet sat with his companions one day and he drew a line in the sand. One straight line. And then he drew a number of lines off to the sides. Then he asked them, you know what this is? They said, Allah and his messenger knows best. He said, this straight line here, this is my path. The straight path. Sirat Mustaqim. Allah tells us to ask, Ihdina Sirat Al-Mustaqim. Show us the straight path. That this is the straight path. The path that myself and my companions are on. One path. He didn't draw a whole set of paths, just one. Then the other set of paths on the outside, he said, you know what these are? Allah is messenger knows best. He said, these are the many paths of misguidance. And there is a devil at the head of each one calling people to it. The straight path is one. The path to paradise is one path. One and only. So it is necessary for us to seek the truth, seek the correct understanding and know that the path to paradise is the path of Islam alone. The path of Islam as taught by Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu in the Quran and in the Sunnah and as understood by his companions and the early generations of Muslims. Now, in the time of the Abbasids, we found a rise in madhab fanaticism. That is where people start to say, my madhab do or die. I'll never give up my madhab. This attitude started to arise on a large scale during the time of the Abbasids. It existed before. This is why some of the early scholars, they warned their companions, don't get involved in this. Stay away from this. Don't follow blindly any of the scholars. You take from where they took. You are students of knowledge. You go back to the same sources that we have used and you take from them. However, in the time of the Abbasids, the Abbasid Caliphs, the later ones, the early ones, they gave official state support to scholars in an attempt to bring them under their wing. However, those that came after them then 
started to deviate in their uh, setup of ruling, becoming full-fledged kings. And like the kings of their day, they included in their court court dancers, singing women, astrologers, magicians. This became in the court of the caliph. You know, you read about it in A Thousand and One Nights. It's true. It happened. Though these things are clearly prohibited in Islam, this became introduced into the courts of the Abbasid Caliphs. And what they added to this uh, court, along with the, the, the singing girls and women and court gestures, astrologers, they added also a phenomenon known as the court scholar. The court scholar. Now, the king and his courtiers, the, his, the people who were around him, they would be amused by the jugglers, the magicians, intrigued by the astrologers, taking pleasure from the singing girls, the dancers. They also took intellectual pleasure from the court scholars. What they would do, because in that time, the main two schools of Islamic thought that were most prevalent in the Ummah at the time was now the Shafi'i school and the Hanafi school. In this time, what they would do is they would have a Shafi'i scholar on one side and a Hanafi scholar on the other side. And an issue of Islamic law would be raised. Somebody would bring up an issue, make it up or however. And the two scholars from either school would start to debate to determine which was the correct ruling. And the scholar who won the argument, he was given a prize of so many dinars by the caliph. Now what this encouraged was madhab fanaticism. Because the scholars who got into these debates, of course, neither one wanted to lose the argument. Their sole goal and intent was to win the argument. Not to find the truth, but to win the argument. So you found that these scholars would hold on to their, to their opinion right till the very end, till they are defeated. Because to give up their opinion and accept the opinion of the other school is to, to surrender, to degrade your school of Islamic thought. So this fanaticism started to develop. And also in this period of time, the rise of what they call hypothetical fiqh, it became, it reached its peak, where issues were raised which people never even dreamed of. This is why you now find, as one brother was relating to me this afternoon, when he was in Perth, the scholar there in charge of the Muslim community, he gave a friend of his who was a 
convert from Mormonism, a Mormon convert, he gave him a book on Islam written by one Maulana or Mulwi from India. In it, the scholar presented a series of situations when discussing the issues of wudu, whether your wudu is retained or not. And he began to talk about if a man has uh, sexual relations with a corpse, and if he has relations with animals, and if he has relations with another man, whether his wudu, he still has wudu or he doesn't have wudu, I see. This thing which was so repulsive when this uh, Mormon, former Mormon, was converted to Islam, he started to read this, he started to wonder, what is this? What kind of religion is this? You know? And truly, myself, when I was in uh, Singapore last year, I visited uh, Darul Arqam, the Muslim Converts Association there. They had a book which they distributed amongst the newly converts and so on. So I was reading through this book. Hey, it's also a book written by a, a scholar from India, Moulwi so-and-so. And in it, in that same area concerning wudu, he was talking about whether a person has wudu if he has sexual relations with a fish. I said, my God, what is this? You see, this is the, the baggage. <laughs> this is the baggage which evolved out of that period of hypothetical and speculative fiqh, which ended up being written down and handed down, you know, in, in, with, with the generations of, of uh, latter-day scholars who no longer exercised ijtihad in the sense of really trying to find practical rulings, but they were just, you know, mechanically uh, recording materials from the early generations, maybe giving some explanations on these early rulings and then explanations on the explanations on the explanations on the explanations this is what you found a body of, of scholarship developed which was you could say in a state of decay and also you know not to put it all on the Hanafi Madhab we also have to this day in some books uh, on fiqh Shafi fiqh I remember reading one particular uh, mas'ala or ruling, which is in books still today, you can read, about the case of an individual who passes wind into a bag. If he gives this bag to somebody else and he opens the bag and the wind comes out, does this break his wudu? I read this, all I could do was laugh. <laughs> you know? This is obviously has no relationship to, to reality and, you know, application of religion, etc. You know, but this is the, the height of, of ridiculousness that this kind of speculative fit, you know, it's brought people to. And in this period of time, a calamity befell the Ummah. The Mongols came through in 1258 and they destroyed Baghdad and the, the books, the, the centers of Islamic learning of that region. And in this period of time, from that point on, you see a major decay and decline in the process of ijtihad, the process by which scholars sought to find new rulings. And in this period, this period following the decline of, uh, of the fall of Baghdad, 
we find scholars making the ruling that it was prohibited from anyone to switch from one madhab to another. And if a judge found a person skipping from one madhab to the other, he had the right to assign a punishment for him. This ruling came about. It was in this period also that we found that the masjids which were built, those to this day you can find them in Syria, in parts of Iraq, where they will have in the masjid, you know, this is called a mihrab, where the imam will stand. This was not in the masjid of the Prophet Muhammad this mihrab was not there. This was something which was developed by early generations of Muslims as the, the, the structure of the the, the um, architecture of the mosque evolved. This was a means of amplifying the voice of the imam. That was the purpose of it. Today we have a microphone. If this is going to cost us extra money, to put it in a masjid is squandering your money. As I said, the purpose was to amplify the voice of the imam. If we have microphones today, this becomes useless. It becomes, it's just something which people associate, the masjid, you must have mihrab. So they put it now. Anyway, the point is that the masjids which were built in this period of time, they used to have those in Damascus. Till this day, you can find them. They have two mihrabs. Why? One mihrab for the Hanafis and one for the Shafis. When the time for prayer used to come, the uh, Hanafi Imam, he would get up and all the Hanafis in the masjid would pray behind him. When he was finished, then the Shafi Imam would get up and all the Shafis would pray behind him. What we had here was two different religions. And guess what? It didn't end there. These divisions did not end in the individual mosques that were built in different parts of the Muslim world. It reached a point where this also happened around the Kaaba itself. They placed around the Kaaba different structures. If you look at pictures of the, uh, the mosque in Mecca, Al-Haram in Mecca, before the 20s, some photographs, they have photographs, you can see, you know, of the mosque structure. And you will find in some of the, uh, the carpets that they make with pictures of the Kaaba, you will find in some of them structures, you will see these structures around the Kaaba. If you're wondering what they were, what they were, four main structures. These were the structures which represented the mihrabs for each of the four schools of Islamic law. And for hundreds of years in Mecca, up until the 1920s, whenever the time for prayer came, the Imam from the Hanafis would get up and those making tawaf were Hanafis prayed behind him. When he was finished and the Imam from the Malikis was going on in the Haram, in the center of Islam, for hundreds of years. When the Prophet Muhammad 
had said that it is prohibited to pray the five prayer twice. For you to have an established imam and for him to pray after two times, this is not allowed. Not allowed. Why? If you don't have an established imam, you have a masjid which is used by a number of different people, then of course it's possible as groups uh, gather in the masjid, they pray and another group may come after them. But where you have an established imam, only one fard prayer. Not allowed to pray this twice. However, as I said, the situation deteriorated to the point where the different schools of Islamic law became like different sects of Christianity. In fact, it was ruled in the Hanafi Madhab that it was prohibited for a Hanafi woman. At first it was for a Hanafi to marry a Shafi. Later this ruling was modified that a Hanafi man may marry a Shafi female but not vice versa. Since the scholars then ruled that at least we should treat them the same way we treat the Christians. We can marry their women, but our women can't marry their men. And this existed for some hundreds of years. This is a state of decay. At the same time, I should mention that there were Muslim scholars all over the Muslim world who throughout this period of decay stood up, spoke out against this decay, called people back to pure Islam. Some of them were persecuted. Some of them had to pay with their lives. Most of them were declared to be apostates because they were going against the, the norm, what had become standard. However, alhamdulillah, over the past hundred years, the movement, the revivalist movement to come back to pure Islam has begun to, to, to increase again. So you find all over the Muslim world more and more scholars and, and laymen, people who don't have academic scholarship but who are very concerned about Islam, trying to read and understand about it, who now seek to apply and practice Islam in accordance with the Quran and Sunnah without carrying along with them the academic and intellectual baggage which has been inherited from those earlier generations. Consequently, as Muslims today, we are not obliged to follow any one particular school of Islamic law. If we are raised in an area where one particular school is taught, then there is no harm to follow 
what we have learned from that particular school is perfectly okay. Nothing wrong to follow a school of thought either. However, if evidence comes to us from the Quran or Sunnah which contradicts something that we have learned from our particular school of thought, then we are obliged to follow the evidence. If we then decide saying that we will only follow our school of thought because this was what we grew up with, this is what our parents did, you know, this is what we have done for generations, then we have become like the pagans when Prophet Muhammad brought Islam to, the, to them, they said, but we found our parents and their and our four parents following this way. You know, why should we change at this point? We just follow what they were doing. See, when a person takes that position, he or she is destroying Ashadu Anna Muhammadan Rasulullah. They're destroying the second half of their declaration of faith. Because it is only Prophet Muhammad who has a right that we follow him blindly. We follow him regardless. Everyone else, every other effort is human. And as such, it will contain in it some errors. So while we can say that within all of the schools of Islamic law, the sunnah is preserved, Islamic law is contained, in none of the individual schools do we find 100% every ruling to be correct, and all of the sunnah contained. All of them having them errors, having them limitations. However, they are the efforts of early generation of scholars who had means and abilities that we don't have. We are enjoined to appreciate their efforts, to benefit from it, and to build on what they have done. Not just to follow it blindly, but to take it with reason and build on it. This is what is enjoined on us. And this is how growth takes place, when we build on that which came before, not that we just blindly imitate and blindly convey what came before without any kind of understanding uh, and application and improvement. That basically summarizes what I would like to present of the schools of Islamic law. That these schools are a product of a historical process. They were not divinely ordained, yes. There are people who may quote to you traditions which claim that Abu Hanifa was predicted by Prophet Muhammad that Imam Shafi was also predicted because traditions also arose in which it was claimed that the Prophet said that such and such a person would arise 
and the description given is that of Abu Hanifa, that of Imam Shafi's also. But these traditions are fabrications. The schools of Islamic law were not divinely ordained in the sense that God chose them for us from the time of Prophet Muhammad They evolved out of a variety of historical circumstances, political, economic circumstances. They are for our benefit, they are to help us to apply the Sharia in our times and in the future. And it's very important for us to approach them with that kind of enlightened understanding wherein we are able then to work together regardless of what school of thought a person comes from we can work together where differences arise we look at the evidence which is presented by the various schools and we choose that which is correct if possible because differences fall under two basic categories differences which are what we call contradictory they cannot coexist like the example I gave you of a person having wudu and not having wudu at the same time this cannot be the other group of differences are those which are variational differences this variation differences means that these things can coexist they represent different ways of doing the same thing. These differences may be traceable back to Prophet Muhammad For example, in Salah, he sat in different ways. So if one chooses to sit in one of the different ways that the Prophet Muhammad sat, it's perfectly okay. Sitting in one way or another, it doesn't matter because they're all done by Prophet Muhammad the other body of differences which have arisen out of ijtihad in areas where there is no clear text but scholars have used the sharia and tried to arrive at some decisions based on a particular circumstance such differences because there is not, they're not based on a clear text, then as Muslims, as long as the line of reasoning used is valid, based on Quran and Sunnah, opinion of the companions of the Prophet then both of these rulings are acceptable and we may choose the ruling which is most applicable. One which is most applicable to our circumstance here because it is not cut and dry. So if we have this kind of approach to the differences that we may find amongst ourselves with regards to the rulings, different Islamic rulings, then inshallah it will be possible for us to work together without allowing the differences to split our ranks. In such a way as I heard mentioned over these last few days that I've been here, 
where the issue arose about whether we may eat the food slaughtered by the Christians or not where this issue became one of halal and haram in the minds of some people where people now started to say if that person eats haram because they felt that food slaughtered by the Christians is haram then I will not pray behind this person I will not come to this person's home to eat and share of his food I don't want to have anything to do with this person that kind of ignorant approach is destructive. It is based on ignorance, not understanding the reasons for the differences, and not seeking the truth, but merely seeking to follow one's desires. What is pleasing to one, because my people, my tribe, my country, my family do it this way then this is the only way for it to be done we have to fight against such feelings which are destructive which will break the ranks of the ummah and this is the difference between the differences amongst the early companions the companions of the Prophet they had differences however they never allowed these differences to split their ranks where some companions refused to pray behind others. However, when ignorance prevailed, then we found a circumstance where people allowed differences to split the ranks of the Muslims. Where some people now refused to pray, refused to marry others merely because they followed a different school of Islamic law. So I hope, inshallah, that what I've presented here has helped to enlighten you as to the historical origin of the schools of Islamic law, the reasons why they differed, and how we as Muslims should treat them in our various circumstances wherein we work together as we are commanded to by Allah in trying to establish Islam here or anywhere that we may be. And inshallah I will stop here now and give you an opportunity to ask any questions you'd like on the subject or to make any comments concerning things which I have said. Please now take advantage of this opportunity. As I mentioned, it is perfectly okay for a person to follow a school of Islamic law. Their knowledge is limited. They don't have the ability to go in on each issue and check out what is ruled in all the different schools of thought and then choose the one which is the most authentic based on a critical analysis, we understand most people can't do this. So they follow whatever they have taught, been taught. The scholar of their area, the scholar in their masjid or whatever, you know, the scholar in the school, whatever circumstance of Islamic learning that they're in, they follow what they're taught. 
However, the point is that if they have been taught something and then somebody comes along to them and says, well, you know, this here that you are doing is contradicting a clear statement by Prophet Muhammad in Sahih Bukhari. Then, this person needs now to question. They may go back to their local scholar who taught them and ask them, what is the evidence for this that you taught? And if the person does not provide an authentic tradition to support it, it is an opinion of so and so and so and so and so and so, then if what he has on one hand is opinion and what he has on another hand is a clear statement, authentic statement of Prophet then for him is to follow the clear statement. He seeks knowledge to the degree that he is able. And then he has to make a judgment. He is not obliged to just keep following and ignore. Something comes, you say, no, I, I don't, I can't deal with this, I don't have any knowledge, so and so, just I'm following this, this is it. No. When knowledge comes, we are obliged to deal with that knowledge. Check it out to the best of our ability. And of course, as I said, we, are, we will be held to account based on the knowledge that we have, the efforts that we, that we made to seek to understand the correct way. This is why Muslim scholars have unanimously agreed that it is not allowable for somebody to jump from school of thought to school of thought just seeking what is pleasing to them. That is, in any given issue, you have already decided what you want to do. So you go looking for the school which will agree with you. That method is prohibited because in fact you are following your desires and not seeking the truth. But to go from school to school seeking the evidence this is for those who are able, who have a level of understanding where they can look at the evidences, then that is what is recommended. Oh, sorry. Uh, oh, before we go into the brothers, let's give a chance to the sisters. Alaikum salam. Okay. Our sister's question is regarding the murid and the murshid and the formula given by the murshid to the murid. Those of you that are not familiar with these terms, uh, murshid represents a teacher or guide. And the murid represents the follower or student. However, a particular context, in the context of mysticism, these words take on another meaning. The, the murid 
worship becomes the spiritual guide. The spiritual guide. And the murid is one who has given up his will, who has submitted his will to that guide. Believing that this person has reached such spiritual heights that whatever they command is the commandment of God and you should follow it. So for you to grow spiritually it is now necessary for you to give up your will to your guide. This view, as I said, has evolved within the context of Islamic or Islamic mysticism, commonly known today as Sufism, and it is in direct opposition to the declaration of faith. The declaration of faith tells us that the only murshid to whom we all should be murids is the messenger of Allah. Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Why? Because Allah said in the Quran May, uh, man, was it again? No, no. Allah. Whoever obeys the messenger has obeyed Allah. He didn't say whoever obeys the murshid has obeyed Allah. He said, Allah said, whoever obeys the messenger of Allah has obeyed Allah. So he is the only one to whom we submit our will because he was guided by revelation and whatever decision he made was confirmed by revelation. Other than him, Prophet Muhammad said, كُلُّ بَنِي آدَمْ all of the descendants of Adam make errors constantly. And the best of those who make errors are those who turn back to Allah in repentance. Therefore, every other human being is capable of error. And as such, it is not permitted for us to submit our wills to them blindly. Whatever they have given us, we have to judge in accordance with the Quran and the Sunnah. So if a murshid tells you to say, Ya Allah, or Ya Qadir, or Ya whatever, a 
thousand times a day in the morning and in the evening or whatever, you have now to go back to the sunnah, to the way of the Prophet Muhammad and to see if this is an agreement. You ask him first, did Prophet Muhammad teach you this? Is this what Prophet Muhammad said to do? If he said no, then you are not obliged to do this. In fact, it is important for you to understand what this means. Because those who will tell you to say, Ya Allah, though the term Allah is the name of Allah, beautiful name of Allah, for a person to sit there saying, Ya Allah, Ya Allah, Ya Allah, Ya Allah, this is nonsensical. Ya Allah means, Oh Allah, you are addressing Allah. It's like me saying, what's your name sister? Rubana. It's like me saying, Oh Rubana, Oh Rubana. Oh Rubana, you see what I say, okay, what, what do you want? For me to keep repeating your name over, you think I'm an idiot. This man has lost his mind. So in the same way, for you to just keep saying, Oh Allah, Oh Allah, Oh Allah, it's nonsensical. This is like the mantras of the Hindus. They take a word, a sound, Oh, and they keep repeating it 